Hey, Kairos. My name's Maggie, and I'm going to be doing our scripture readings for tonight. Um, It's out of Luke 23. These are verses 32 through 43. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the others answered, rebuking him. Don't, even, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. In 1803, Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark up the Missouri River to find a water passage across the United States. Now, at the time, America had just purchased the Louisiana Purchase. I know that's redundant, but that's what they did. They purchased the Louisiana Purchase, and they had no idea what was out there. But the hope was that they would find a way to take Uh, people across this new land by water, by boat. And so Thomas uh, Jefferson sent these two men and a group of others to go find a way across America. Now, I've got a picture of a map of the world at that time. This is what they knew of America, okay? Just so you know, I could have drawn this in third grade, okay? Just so you know. This is not very clear. The things that we see is we see the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, something that sort of looks like the Gulf of Mexico, and the Mississippi River in the middle. And this is all they knew. But they had heard that there were some rivers to the left. If you look at the top left, you see a little squiggly line. Captain Cook had charted a river, the Columbia River, that went eastward towards civilization. And they knew that the uh, Mississippi River went up and down Uh, the land that they had just uh, purchased. And so they said, you know, it would be a great idea if we could send some people to go up the Missouri River and see if we can find a way to connect these two bodies of water. So that's what uh, Lewis and Clark did. They they went upstream up the Missouri. Along the way, they met Pocahontas. She became a guide for them. And eventually, they came to the headwaters of the Missouri River. I don't know if you've seen the Missouri River, but it's massive. At some points, it's over a mile across. But when they got to the headwaters... They could stand over it and it would go right between their legs. And they thought that was incredible. They thought they had come to the end of their journey and that if they just go just a little bit further, if they just cover the last ground between them and the top of the hill that they were near, that they would be able to see the Columbia River, maybe even see the Pacific Ocean. And they would just sail down this river all the way to their destination. But they never saw what was coming. Because when they got to the top of that hill, guess what was staring them in the face? The Rocky Mountains. I know for us, we all know that they're there, right? But they had no idea that they were there. This is what they saw. They saw an incredible 
landscape full of glaciers and cliffs and forests. And they realized that they were going to have to sell their canoes, buy horses, and learn how to rock climb to make it through these mountains. And the reason why I say this is because a lot of us are faced with the surprise of Easter. We don't know the terrain. In fact, if you were to look at a modern map, I actually found this one on Twitter. I thought this was fascinating. You'll see what the United States actually looks like. So on the right-hand side of this picture, you find that most of the United States on the eastern side of America is very flat. But when you go to the left, just a little bit, you go to west, you're going to find that most of the rest of the United States is a very elevated uh, elevation. Um, by the way, in case you're wondering, that little divot there on the left-hand side, that's California. That's why they say it may fall into the ocean someday, okay? It's already almost underwater. But as you look at this map, we see the entire picture. And the same thing is true with Easter. We know the end of the story, and so often we take for granted the events that happened that week at Holy Week. And tonight, on Holy Tuesday, as we enter into Holy Week, we want to make sure that we don't take the story for granted, that we would recover some of the wonder that is surrounding Easter. See, here's the deal. I don't know about you, but like, man, when I, when I think about Easter, I sometimes put it as kind of like the second fiddle to the Christian holidays. Easter is... Uh, not as important as Christmas in most of our stories, in most of our calendars, right? I mean, at Christmas, we take an entire month off. They start playing Christmas music in September. We're thinking about Christmas all the time. We, we focus on it. We spend special time with family members. We take time out of school. We make a big deal about Christmas. But at Easter, most of us really don't pay attention until it may be Good Friday. And then on Easter, we go to church. We have a meal afterwards. Maybe we uh, hunt for some Easter eggs or watch our younger siblings or cousins do that. But for many of us, Easter is something that just happens and it just comes and goes and becomes almost like any other week. I feel that way because already this week, I'm planning an Easter service and all I can think about is how to keep my kids alive. I'm just like, man, can we just get through this week? And I think it's important for us to recover the incredible wonder at Easter, to remember what Jesus actually did. And so tonight, our hope is that you would engage with Jesus as we look at the story that was just read, that Maggie just read, and we can see the grace and beauty that's revealed in our Savior as he gave himself for us, as we look at the story of two men who interact on their last day, Jesus and a criminal. Now, when it comes to this idea of wonder, it seems to me that there are two key words that just uh, really spark a desire for God uh, in me when I read this story. And those two words are really important. We're going to be focusing a lot of our time tonight on those two words. The first word is remember. Remember. And the second word is paradise. Remember and paradise. We've been spending our time talking about those two words and interacting with them because in them we see a picture of what Jesus did for us as his people, as he laid down his life for us. Now, the first word, remember. Um, we find the thief on the cross saying this word. If you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, oh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 23, we find Jesus having an interaction with a man who's also crucified with him. 
And he says this. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he says this as someone who's experiencing crucifixion. And if we're getting some context to the story, what we find is that Jesus came into Jerusalem. He was entering in as someone that had a ton of expectations upon him. People were expecting him to be the Messiah that was going to come get rid of the Romans once and for all. And as Jesus rolls in, people greet him, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, glory to God. And then Jesus goes to the temple and kicks out a bunch of money changers and throws a huge ruckus in the temple courts. And so people are already getting amped up. They're like, Jesus is going to finally do it. We've been waiting for him to do it. He's finally going to do it. And then... Things spiral out of control, and Jesus is crucified between two thieves. And it's important for us to realize that this thief looks at Jesus and decides to jump on the Jesus bandwagon when it's at an all-time low. Everybody else has jumped off. Jesus is crucified, and no one saw that coming except for Jesus. Every single one of his followers are Hiding, They've run. The Bible even tells us that one of his followers ran when Jesus arrested him to the point where he ran away naked. Like, he's just like, I'm just out of here. I'm gone. And yet Jesus now on the cross, as he's suffering a death that he did not deserve, the thief looks at him and says, I want in. I want on it. I want to be a part of this bandwagon. I want to follow you, Jesus. And he says, remember me. It says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, this word remember is an important one because it's not uh, used in the way that we use the word remember. When we think about remembering, we think about not forgetting, right? Like, I don't know about you. I have a ritual that I do before I leave the house. I try to remember all the stuff I'm supposed to take with me. I'm like, keys, wallet, iPhone. I want to make sure I don't forget those things because every time I do, I have a really bad day. I mean, by the way, if you ever left your phone at home, you know what I'm talking about, right? You just, like, feel like you're completely helpless. You can't contact anybody. You feel like you're completely cut off from the rest of the world. And at one point, we didn't have phones, so we didn't know how bad it was. But right now, if we lose our phone, we feel like we've lost one of our senses, right? And so we want to make sure we remember we have all these things. Maybe you are someone who's constantly trying to remember things. So you write notes to yourself all the time. Or you, you have little things that you keep around the house to make you remember. But that's not the way this word is used in the Bible, specifically when it comes to God. The word remember has covenant language to it. And it means that uh, when you ask God to remember something, it means you're asking him to act on his promises. And throughout the Old Testament, you find people saying, God, remember. And it's not because God forgot or he's forgetful or he has other things to do. Because God knows all things and sees all things. But what they're saying is they're saying, Jesus, please act. Don't forget about me. Probably the greatest example of that is found in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, God's people are suffering. They're enslaved by their oppressors. And the Bible says that this, verse 23, it says, The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Do you see how the word is used there? Remember. God remembered his covenant, the covenant he had made with their ancestors. And that's how the thief on the cross is using this. 
Now, I think there's something that we need to make sure that we don't miss here because what I find the thief on the cross doing here is he's making a personal plea to Jesus. In fact, he uses Jesus' name. You know, when people talk to Jesus throughout the New Testament, they don't usually call him Jesus. They call him rabbi or Lord. So they say Lord, and it's a, it's a term of, of being uh, someone who's willing to put themselves under his leadership. It's a reverential title. Rabbi is also a reverential title saying teacher. But the thief of all people says Jesus. So why would he use this language? Why would he say, Jesus, remember me? Well, I believe that Jesus is being called by his name because the thief is calling Jesus to live up to his name. You know, a lot of times we just gloss over the fact that Jesus' name has incredible meaning. You know what his name means? His name literally means God saves. That's what Yeshua means. God saves. In fact, the angel, when he appeared to Mary, said, you're going to call him Jesus. You can't call him Fred or Steve or whatever you want. We've already come up with a name for Jesus. His name is God saves. We're going to bake it right into his name. And this thief says, God, Jesus, I need you to live up to this name of salvation because I have nowhere else to turn. Jesus, remember me. You know, sometimes we feel completely unseen by God, unseen by our friends and family. Sometimes we feel alone, we feel desperate, we feel like we're not remembered and we're not seen. You ever feel that way? I mean, like, wow, God, do you even like, remember me? Do you do you forget about me when you're off like trying to help stop conflicts like in the Ukraine or you're trying to help people have cancer? All these people are praying to you. How can you remember me? But the thief on the cross goes right to the source. It says, Jesus, I need you to pay attention to me. And in this, we find a model for what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is incredibly accessible, and his name means salvation. And he's inviting us to call upon him. And we find this thief, when he says, Jesus, remember me, he makes one of the most astonishing claims in the entire Bible. He says, Jesus, remember me, not just like now, but remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think about the faith that this guy has. Jesus is being crucified. He's also being crucified on this cross. There's nothing he can do to earn his way into God's good graces. Like literally, it's lights out for him really soon. And he can't do anything about it. He can't work hard enough. He can't go back to school. He can't get good at his Bible drill. He can't do anything to become worthy of the name of Jesus. And yet he's calling upon Jesus and says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom... Remember me. Right above Jesus' head, there's a placard that says, King of the Jews. A lot of people are making fun of Jesus, saying, if you're a king, come down and build your kingdom. The thief goes, you know what? I still believe you will bring about the kingdom, and I want to be in it. There's something about remembering the Redeemer at Holy Week that needs to get deep inside of us, that what we're celebrating isn't just Jesus coming and going through these motions, almost like a divine play. We're interacting with someone who knows us and sees us and cares about us and remembers us and has invited us into this kingdom. If we call him by name, we have access to him. Second word is paradise. Jesus responds to him, verse 20, 
uh, verse 43, it says this, Jesus says, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I think it's fascinating because Jesus could have used a lot of different words because Jesus responds and says, hey, today you're going to actually have what you're asking. You're asking to be a part of the kingdom. You're asking me to remember you. Today that's going to happen. And Jesus could have said, I'll see you in heaven. Or I could, have, I could see you in Abraham's bosom, which was a fancy word for what the Jews thought was, was kind of heaven or pre-heaven. In fact, Jesus tells a story about that and a story about Lazarus and a rich man. So some of them have been like, okay, he's talking about that. But that's not the word that Jesus uses. He uses the word paradise. And it has specific connotations to what he's doing on the cross. The word paradise means literally uh, a garden. It's a Persian word in Greek. And it means a garden or a quiet place where you can come and find rest. But Jesus probably isn't using that Greek word, although our Bible is written in Greek. They preserve the meaning behind it uh, and what he said, because Jesus is probably speaking Hebrew. And when he says paradise here, he's literally saying, en Eden. Now, doesn't that ring a bell? Does that sound familiar? What Jesus is literally saying, he's saying, I'll see you today in the garden of Eden. Today. And that brings back a lot of history in that statement. You see, on the very first day of mankind's failure before a holy God, on the day that we turned our back and rebelled against him and our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, when they ate of the fruit and said, we want to be the ones who say we're going to be the ones who are going to find our destiny. When they said that, God made a promise that day for a savior. When he cursed the serpent, Satan, God made a promise that there was going to be a coming savior. I want to read it to you. It's in Genesis 3, verse 15. God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What God says is that there's going to be a day that the woman, Eve, will have a great, great grandson and you will strike his heel. You will hurt him, but he's going to crush your head. And there's a beautiful piece of artwork I want to show you guys. This, you may have seen this. This comes around at Christmas a lot of times. This is a picture of two women, Eve with the serpent wrapped around her leg, mournful, holding Mary's hand as they touch the Christ child who brings about justice and destruction to his enemy. When Jesus says, I am, will meet you in Eden, this is what he's thinking of. The Redeemer is conquering death for all time. That's what he's doing. I don't know if anybody likes the Lord of the Rings in this, this house tonight. That makes two of us. Let's go. All right. Have no shame. It's the best book ever written. Okay, other than the Bible. The Lord of the Rings, written by J.R.R. Tolkien, um, has within it something that he called a eucatastrophe. You guys heard that, that phrase, eucatastrophe? If you use that in common conversation, people are going to think you're really smart. We may go, what is a eucatastrophe? A eucatastrophe is a catastrophe, but the opposite. Okay? So basically, think, instead of things going bad, they turn out for good. So an example of this is like in a football game, when your team is losing, and through a 
series of freak accidents, your team wins, right? When you think the worst is going to happen, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the best happens. And you get inspired. You become surprised by it. That's what we see at the cross. This man goes to a cross that morning thinking he's going to die and he's going to suffer and it's going to be the end of his story. But there is a greater story that Jesus is writing. He meets Jesus on the cross and he moves from death to an eternal life. That's a catastrophe here in this story. And the same thing is true for you and me. God is into surprising us and bringing about life from death. That's what he's doing at Easter. That's what he's doing in your life. The beauty of Easter is that it doesn't stop there. We walk through the steps of remembering Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, because that's our story. We are just like the thief on the cross who our life is worthy of death. But on our last day, we meet Jesus and we get to experience new life because he remembers us and brings us home. That's what Jesus does. He brings healing and hope to the hopeless. Man, I don't know about you, but I love that Jesus. I love the fact that he restores our stories. Listen, I don't know where you are. You might feel like, man, that's not me. I can't get there. I've, I've done too much. I've sinned too much. I've been with too many people. I've looked at bad stuff. I have mental health that's holding me back. I've got stuff that I can't overcome. I was abused. I'm broken. I'm prideful. I've got sin in my life. But if Jesus can save that man there, he can save you anywhere. Right? If he can save a person on the cross while he himself is hanging between earth and sky, he can change your life forever. And he wants to do that. So the question I have to ask is this. How do we get to a place where we recover the Redeemer, where we restore this relationship with this incredible person who gave his life for us? How do we do that? Well, the way we do that is we live it. We make the Bible no longer something we hear on a page or in a church service. We step into that kind of life where we say, Jesus, I want in. I want you to remember me. I want to be a part of it. We hop on the bandwagon with what Jesus is doing. We're going to take communion tonight. And it's a great opportunity for us to remember when we take communion. Now, communion is something that Jesus set up. Okay, this is not our idea. It's something Jesus did. And on the last night of his death, the night before he died, the night before he was betrayed, Jesus had a feast with his disciples. And he gathered them together to give them his last instructions. And one of those things that he told them is he said, listen, I want you to remember me whenever you eat bread and wine together because the bread is a symbol of my body that will be broken for you and the wine is a symbol of my blood which I'm going to shed. And every time you do that, you get to remember me. And tonight we're going to do that. So if you are in this house tonight and you are a Christian, you're invited to come and partake. And we're going to have a time where the band's going to come up and they're going to play a time, a a, a bit of music for us to just sit in the moment and rest in what Christ has done. I'm going to ask those of you guys who come and take of it, that you would just hold that for just a minute and we're going to take it together at the end. But here's the deal. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus 
but yet your heart was strangely stirred and warmed. You say, I want to know Jesus. Just know that Jesus is looking for you. He's seeking you. He loves you. He's given his life for you. And even if you doubt, Jesus is not afraid of it. In fact, he welcomes you at the table because he is someone who deeply loves you and knows you and cares for you. And he's making it possible for you to get in on it, just like the rest of us. You know, coming in a place like this, you may feel like, man, you guys got it all figured out. I'm going to just tell you, we don't. On our best day, we're a freaking mess. We just are. We need grace. We found someone who can give it to us. So I'm going to invite Boggs to come up and lead us in a time of reflection. And as he does it, I just want you to take this time to sit in the moment after you've taken your cup. There are stations throughout the room. Back here, there's a couple. Um, I don't see any back there, so I think they're all up here. And the reason we had them here is because we want you to be able to come and take them from a person. We're going to have a communal moment. But as you come do that and then return to your seat, I want you just to sit in this moment and just rest in what Jesus has done for you. To reclaim the wonder and the awe because there is still more mercy than we can imagine. There's still more hope that is out there for us and there's still more surprises that Jesus has in store for us. So let me just take a moment to pray before we get started. Jesus, we come as people who are broken and needy. We come as people who need the cross and we need a resurrection. So as we process this, this journey this week, so we walk through the, the steps of remembering you, remembering your passion, your love for us, remembering your care at the cross, remembering that you still had time for a broken man who is dying at your side to offer him life and hope. If you could do that for him, what more can you do for us? So Jesus, we invite you into this place. And Jesus, we say we remember. It's your name we lift up tonight. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You can come to the table.